Welcome back to the Matrix Podcast, a podcast written and produced by Athens High School students. My name is Clay Boninger. And I'm Hosea Bickley. Last time we talked with Dr. Daniel Skinner and Dr. Berkeley Franz about the opioid crisis in America, specifically in Southeast Ohio. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Brittany Peterson, a communications professor at Ohio University. Dr. Peterson's research focuses on prison systems in America and elsewhere. The National Institute on Drug Abuse reports that in America, roughly 65% of incarcerated individuals suffer from substance use disorder. Also, that same study shows that approximately 20% of prisoners did not meet medical criteria for a substance use disorder, but were under the influence of drugs at the time of their arrest. Dr. Peterson will talk with us about what she has seen while researching in prisons and what prisoners have reported to her about their experiences behind bars. She also focuses on the agency that prisoners are exercising and the agency that they are being prohibited from exercising while living in prison. Hello, Dr. Peterson. It's so great to have you on. Can you introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Um, My name is Dr. Brittany Peterson. I am a faculty member in the School of Communication Studies in Athens, Ohio. I am originally from Wisconsin, so big Packer fan, big cheese head, (laughs) Um, and lived in Wisconsin all the way uh, through my undergraduate degrees. I have a Bachelor of Business Administration in Human Resource Management, Bachelor of Arts in Communication, and MA in Communication. And then I moved with my husband, Steve, down to Texas. So we got to live um, in Austin for four years. Mm -hmm. where I got my PhD in communication. And then we've been here ever since in Athens. Uh, We moved here in 2010. And we have two kiddos. Um, Our son Pax is eight and our daughter Praley is six. And so they are a lot of fun and a lot of work and a lot of energy. (laughs) (laughs) So where does your interest in prisons come from? Yeah, um, you know, that that is a story. I think that something that's really interesting is when you think about faculty and what we research, Often you don't hear the stories behind the scholarship, like why it is, what motivates us. And a lot of the times there's a personal connection there, and that is very much the case for me. So um, I'll just start by saying my brother is the inspiration for my scholarship. He spent the better part of a decade in prison in and out three times and um, he is just a few years younger than me and spent really formative years there and so if we kind of back up a little bit and rewind the clock Mm -hmm. I was sitting in a PhD seminar my first year in the program so you know fresh out of my master's program 25 years old and um, not really knowing what I wanted to do and it seemed like everyone around me had a vision and what they wanted to study and what they were interested in and I just didn't know. And I was in this class that was really unique. It was called Qualitative Camp. And so they took us down in the seminar to the coast of Texas. We were in Port Aransas. And the uh, professor, Dr. Larry Browning, had invited some of his former students in to present their research and, and help us to learn what qualitative work was about, which is essentially like interviewing and focus groups and making sense of data that you'd get from that. And um, I'm sitting there, and a woman named Dr. Susan Semania started talking about her work on victim-offender mediation. And it just hit me that um, I could study something that was really profoundly meaningful to me in my own life um, that had affected my family and continued to so deeply. And so then it kind of became this process of figuring out what is it about prison that's interesting and unique from a communication perspective. Um, Why should people other than me, you know, and my my family, um, why why should we care about that? Like, why does that matter? Why is it important? And so that's kind of what started it all um, was was Ben and um, that experience, that spark. 
Did you have any questions that you wanted to answer specifically in your study, the communicative construction of involuntary membership? Yeah, so what ended up happening is um, when I was working in my doctoral work, right, like after that spark moment, um, it became this journey of trying to figure that out. And um, what I eventually landed on is that in my field, my discipline, which is organizational communication, um, historically, people have looked at what it looks like, for example, to um, examine supervisor and subordinate communication. So we look at, oh, you know, in a traditional employee setting, you've got subordinates, you've got supervisors, how do they interact? And at the time when I was doing my doctoral work, people were starting to talk about, and it was becoming really common to discuss voluntary organizations and nonprofit organizing, NGOs. And, um, and my wheels started spinning and said, okay, if it's, if it's different in nonprofit, if volunteer work is different, um, what does that mean for an involuntary situation? When you've got a whole organization full of people who don't want to be there, but they're the reason the organization exists. Like, what does that look like? How does that shift our understanding of a lot of our theories and our assumptions? Um, and so that kind of just became my um, my goal and my guiding light and the motivation for my dissertation project, which is the one that um, the title that you just mentioned, it was the study of the communicative construction of involuntary membership. And so my goal really was to understand what does it mean to be an involuntary member? Can you tell us how that study was structured and why you chose to structure it that way you did? Yeah, absolutely. So I um, was really fortunate to be able to have access to prisons both in the U.S. and Norway. Mm-hmm. It was a very long procedure. It took months and months and months of getting um, the appropriate Um, people signing off at the university, the internal review board, and then through the Norwegian prison, through the U.S. prisons. Um, But I was able to do interviews with 62 people in the U.S. and in Norway. And um, 41 of those, I believe, were incarcerated individuals. Uh, And so I started in Norway. And um, so Norway was a very different experience than Texas prisons were. Um, The Norwegian prisons were a lot more humane. Um, There isn't as much social distance between people who've spent time in prison in Norway and people who've spent time um, in prison here in the United States. And a lot of that is just kind of our our understanding of stigma and how um, other cultures kind of envision crime in a different kind of way. In Norway, most of the time, the longest sentence you can get is 21 years. There mm. is a caveat where there can be five-year renewable sentences mm. for particularly heinous crimes, but um, very rarely employed. And um, and there's no death penalty. And so you don't have people – there isn't the view that, like, we're going to throw people away and, you know, lock you know lock, lock the door and throw away the key. Yeah. Um, that just doesn't exist there. And so the experience of collecting data in Norway was much different. When I would walk in um, to the facility, there was a lot of trust there. I brought a bag in. They didn't search my bag. I didn't have to give it up. Um, they only took my driver's license for identification. Mm-hmm. They left us alone in a room, like a library. They served coffee and cookies. So we're like visiting just like you and I are right now. And um, and they were wearing street clothes. Um, there just, there wasn't the like uh, perception that the researchers or the people coming in were better than yeah. the folks that we were interviewing. Um, and so that's kind of what it was like over there. And then in Texas prisons, it was much different. Um, It's almost like the physical structure of the prison didn't want for you to forget who was in charge, right, who had the power. Um, I recall that in my first set of interviews in a Texas prison, it was a very traditional old building. It was built in the 1800s, and 
um, they they led me into the um, solitary confinement visiting space. So in some prisons, there's space where you get to visit, contact visits, where you'd sit across almost like a cafeteria-style yeah. table and um, visit with people. But in this particular one, they didn't want me to be able to touch <laughs> the incarcerated folks. And so they sent me in this room, and there was a giant pane of glass um, between us and kind of a little audio speaker that you could talk through. And this is the power thing for me. They had me on this stool, and the stool was so incredibly high. I'm a short person, and my feet couldn't even reach the ground. I was, like, perched up on this stool. And then when the um, incarcerated person would come in, he was on this very low, low chair, like you think about, like, a folding chair. And so I was, like, feet above him, hovering over him, trying to talk to him. And of course, this is the setup that they have for any visiting person. It wasn't just me. Yeah. Um, so it was set up as such like that I was the one with the power and authority in that situation and that they were kind of lowly. So those two experiences of, uh, of being in prison were really, really different. Mm-hmm. Were there any stories or testimonies from inmates that particularly fascinated or shocked you? <laughs> so many too many to name um but yeah I, I don't know there there are some that really stand out one of them was i had a guy who told me that he'd been in solitary confinement for about 12 years mm-hmm. and he wasn't at the time when i interviewed him um but he was kind of telling me about that and about that story and um when he had entered the room i reached my hand out which i always did i would i would extend my hand and i would shake shake their hand thank you for being mm-hmm. here i really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me and then i'd explain the study and he just, um, he had this visceral reaction. He like physically flew back from me, like his body pulled away almost involuntarily. Like he couldn't, he couldn't stop himself um, when I extended my hand because he couldn't remember the last time that he had touched someone mm-hmm. um, other than like a correctional officer handcuffing behind him his back. Like he hadn't had kind physical contact in forever and some of that had to do with the 12 years in solitary confinement but um so that was a pretty profound moment for me realizing the impact um that incarceration can kind of have on on people's psyche and on their on their experiences so that's just one example of many extreme examples that i encountered there in your study agency is talked about a lot can you explain what agency is and what agency a, pr- a prisoner could have given the, given the environment they're in? Absolutely. Um, so when we talk about agency, um, it's hearkening back to structuration theory. It's an element of that, and that links to Giddens if anybody wants to go and do further reading <laughs> on that. But um, agency in and of itself is the ability to act otherwise. So it essentially just means that you have you have capacities, you have um, choice, you have the ability to do something in a particular situation. So even in prison, even when you're involuntary or you're so constrained that you feel like there are no choices, there always are. Um, And that's what Giddens talks about as the dialectic of control. So the idea that even when you're very disempowered and you've got a lot of people over you um, in authority or having power over you, there's always going to be possibilities for resistance, possibilities to push back, possibilities to have agency, Mm -hmm. to have the ability to do something in those settings. You also mentioned five facets that can be seen as encapsulating the communicative construction of involuntary membership. One of those is the physical environment that inmates are in. Could you tell us how the physical environment of inmates affects their experiences in prison? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things, just to kind of paint a broader picture for you of the study, 
Um, so you had asked me before what kind of study it was, mm-hmm. and and it was a qualitative study. It was an interpretive study, and what what that meant for me is is that I went in and I said, I want to know what it means to be an involuntary member. I want to know. Um, how incarcerated folks experience this. I want to know how correctional officers talk about it, what that looks like. And from that, from all of these interviews and and observations and spending time in these prisons and talking with all the folks, um, I ultimately, after much analysis and many layers and things, um, came to this notion that membership really is along a continuum. So it's along a continuum from voluntary to involuntary. And the five facets that you mentioned, the extent to which people are feeling involuntary in these five different ways. And those ways are physical environment, mobility, relationships, body, and engagement. So the extent to which they're feeling um, or experiencing those as being really constrained or not having a lot of control or volition, that's kind of the further along they'd get pushed along an involuntary continuum. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the broader like contextualization or finding. So back to, let me answer your question <laughs> about um, the physical environment and how that affected their experiences in prison. Um, so the physical environment, I mean, many people have seen television shows, right? Like you see it, you see what prison is portrayed like. And in some facilities, it is like that. You know, it's the, the bars and um, the tiny cells and the um, stainless steel toilets and things like that, right? Um, others feel more like tiny, tiny dorm rooms. Um, so you'll have like a solid door and um, the beds are, uh, they're hard and they put these tiny little mattresses. I think one of the most profound things about the physical environment for me that um, I hadn't really thought about is that you have no control over the sound or the light in your space. Mm -hmm. So it's constantly loud and noisy in there. And if you, especially if you're an introvert, if you just want a moment of silence, a moment away, there aren't spaces really where you can go to have that. I mean, unless you're in solitary confinement, and then there's a lot of silence (laughs) that you may not choose. but the incarcerated folks talk, often talked about how loud it was and they, that they couldn't get much sleep um, and how the lights never really you know, dimmed as much. Uh, so that was pretty profound from a physical environment standpoint. The other thing, which is slightly more uncomfortable to think about <laughs> from my perspective is most of the times um, people shared cells or shared rooms mm-hmm. and there'd be two people in a room at minimum. Um, sometimes they have large, almost barracks style dorms. So you might see a hundred beds, like a hundred bunk beds and you get no privacy there. Um, but in the dorm room style ones, like where you have a cell with two folks in it, um, they usually would have a toilet and um, sometimes they would talk about the fact that if they needed to use the toilet, like their cellmate was there. So they would just kind of say to one another, like, hey, man, like, I got to go to the bathroom. And they may not be able to leave at that time. Like it might be count where they have to remain in their cells. And so the other person would, if they were a good cellmate, turn away, right? Um, But just the imagining of not having privacy at all um, when you're doing kind of some of the most intimate things in your life is um, just a hard thing to wrap your head around. What about the mobility that an inmate has? What does that look like in prison? Sure. So mobility, I think, when you think about being involuntary, is one of the most obvious ones. 
So you think involuntary, oh, well, I can't leave when I want to, like I'm stuck here. And that very much is the case that makes um, inmates kind of the quintessential um, involuntary member. Uh, And so what I saw, what was interesting is the ways that incarcerated individuals tried to resist that, to to resist being stuck there. Um, And I actually heard some pretty interesting stories from folks, both in the US and in Norway, about prison escapes. So they tried to be able to move when they wanted to, leave when they wanted to. Um, The one in Norway, the guy that we talked to had actually tried to escape several times. Norwegian prisons are slightly less secure than uh, the ones here. And, um, and it was, it was interesting to hear his story. One, one time he told us about trying to escape. um, And I say us, it was a faculty member um, in Norway came along with me so that in case there were translation issues that he was there. Most folks spoke English though. Um, And he just talked about how he had broken, like jumped out of a window in a courtroom. So that was kind of a fun, it was a funny story because he was sitting in front of me and was fine and you know, nothing had gone wrong, but it was humorous. Um, The other one, not so funny. Um, One of the wardens, and I think that this was something that was striking to me. The warden at one of the prisons that I visited just didn't have, didn't view inmates as people, as, as humans at all, right? And mm-hmm. and so, you know, I think it's important for me to say that when people commit crimes, I, I think that there is some role that our criminal justice system needs to play. I think that it's pretty darn broken right now, and I don't think we do it well. I don't think we do incarceration well. I think we've got a lot to learn from, from Canada, from Norway, from other Scandinavian countries. Um, but I'm not saying no one should be in prison. I'm not saying we shouldn't have prison. Um, but this warden, he just didn't think about people as as inmates, as human. And so we talked about this one man who tried to escape, and it was almost laughable to him. He was like, oh, yeah, you know, he, he got shot trying to climb over the barbed wire, and he had taped this cardboard around him trying to climb over it, but, but we shot him, and then he drowned, you know, in the river, riverbank nearby. And he was, he was almost, like, jovial in telling me this story. Um, but those were, like, the extreme ways uh, that you saw inmates resisting. Um, one other brief way, um, that most in most prisons, folks generally, as long as there's not like a lockdown, there's not a reason to keep people in their cells, they have some flexibility about where they go during most of the times of the day. And so they might be able to go to common rooms or to a music room or um, to move freely about. And so uh, the, the mobility is constrained or not constrained oftentimes depending on kind of how strict that particular prison is and what level security it is. The third that is brought up is relationships. Through your experience researching in prisons, how have you seen prisoners form relationships, be it positive or negative, with other prisoners? So I use the word relationships um, when I wrote this study. And I don't, like even just hearing you read it right now, I started Mm -hmm. to think, um, I don't know that the word like relationship, that conveys such a warmth, right? Like relationship conveys friendship or meaning or connection. And I I think that most incarcerated people would say that that is pretty absent in prison, like relationships in the way that we envision and understand them. Um, So most of the stories were not necessarily about deep, meaningful relationships that people Mm -hmm. engaged in. It was more about how they were able to survive given the Um, individuals they were placed alongside, the individuals that they encountered in those spaces. And so um, a lot of times, so I mentioned my brother, you know, spent the better part of a decade in prison, and he would just constantly say things like, well, I just want them to be um, clean and quiet. 
it's clean and quiet roommate or celly, they call them cellies. If it's a clean and quiet celly, then I'm happy. Like that's that's really important. Um, and so a lot of the times the idea is is that um, in terms of relationships, if you if you stay out of my way, if you let me do me, um, if you're respectful, then we're not going to have a problem. Uh, the the tension and the challenge came in when that was not the case. Um, prison is a difficult place to be because you might have three or four or five correctional officers to several hundred inmates at times. They can't see everything, um, sometimes because they can't and sometimes because they don't want to. And um, so there certainly are situations where people experience abuse, whether that's physical, sexual, um, and uh, it can be pretty extreme. I heard stories, of course, not from people who had personally experienced it, but you mm-hmm. know, secondhand stories of, of things like that that happened and kind of just the extreme um, lengths that folks went to to escape relationships that they had been placed into or cellmate relationships. And in fact, um, one, one inmate told me a story about how he had heard someone had jumped off of a second story, like cell floor had jumped off just to get away from his roommate to get to the infirma, um, infirmary um, so that he no longer had to be in the cell with the other person. Now that's, that's extreme, right? Like most of it is not like that. Most of it is, you know, you're maybe frustrated or annoyed in the same way that a college student might be with their roommate or you all might be with your parents sometimes <laughs> or siblings that you live with. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's just reflecting on that idea of relationships. There's there's little trust. There's more forming alliances. Um, there certainly are gangs in prison or groups of people. They might not use the word gangs, um, but groups of people that form together for protection. Um, and oftentimes those do happen along um, like racial lines. You'll see them talk about that. And in fact, stepping into prison is almost like going back in time uh, in terms of the extreme divisions that are overt and not just covert, right? A lot of the things that we see in our society now, there's like lots of microaggressions. Um, They're just aggressions in prison. (laughs) Not so many microaggressions. It's much more obvious uh, in terms of those relationships. The fourth facet is is body. Can you talk about the the ways that prisoners' bodies are used to disempower the prisoners themselves? Yeah, so I think body for me was the most interesting of the five facets that I um, kind of happened upon and that I really dwelled in. Um, and I think it's because as people, we we believe that our bodies are, and we're taught, and we should be, right, that our bodies are ours. Mm-hmm. Like we, um, we have authority over them, agency, right? We have agency over our own bodies. Uh, but in prison, that's just not the case. Um, in prison, you belong to the prison, like your your number, um, your ward of the state is another phrase that people will use a lot of the time. And and certainly there are laws um, that protect inmates and, and their bodies. Um, but uh, there are a lot of things and rules that are in place that um, very much disempower folks, which... I'm not not saying that some of these don't make sense, right? Um, So one of the things that people talked a lot about is if they had a visitor, if they went out into the visiting space, when they would come back into the prison, the actual like prison area, every time they had to go um, from the prison to the visiting room and from the visiting room to back into the prison, they would be strip searched. And so they would have to strip down naked. Um, And sometimes that was like a full cavity search. So the correctional officers would actually insert their hands into various body parts um, to check to make sure that there weren't things that were being hidden in their bodies. Um, People would talk about how 
when they came into prison that they would have to, they use the phrase, bend over and cough um, to, you know, make sure that there was nothing in different places, um, particularly with women um, and women's prisons. That was something that they would talk about. Uh, and so there's a very dehumanizing aspect to that, right? Like being made to strip naked. And, and oftentimes, um, especially with intake, it wasn't like, okay, get naked, we're checking you. Okay, put your clothes back on. It was like all hundred of you get naked mm-hmm. and stand here and wait your turn kind of thing. Um, so there's a humiliation aspect that certainly came into play with body. Um, on a lesser extreme note, um, in terms of body, they didn't really have uh, authority a lot of times over like when they could shower or bathe. Um, there were often certain stipulations about how frequently they could or what days they could or what time blocks they were allowed to go and shower. And so just from like a hygiene or nourishment perspective um, for when they wanted to eat, all of these things, of course, are programmed by the prison. And so they didn't have a lot of control um, or power over their own bodies. Um, yeah. Are there any ways that you've seen prisoners use their bodies to resist or push back against the authorities that control them? Yeah, I mean, they definitely did at times. Uh, there was one gentleman who told me a story about how he had diabetes, and um, and again, the prison's on a very regimented schedule about when they're allowed to eat, and so he would hide sugar packets and keep them on his person, mm-hmm. hoping not to get caught or in trouble because that would be contraband, but you know, making sure that he could keep his sugar levels where he needed them to be. Um, there were always stories of people hiding food and drink, um, in places like the toilet, um, they would find ways to, to hide things and resist in that way so they could nourish themselves. And I think the most extreme example of um, you, people using their bodies to resist, I had one one incarcerated individual. He was, uh, he was really brilliant. Um, he started talking to me about the etymology of the word penitentiary. And that's how our interview started. And I was like, you are interesting. Um, but he told me uh, essentially how he kind of wooed a female correctional officer and convinced her to have a relationship with him. Uh, and so he was telling me this whole story about this woman. And so, I mean, there's, you know, there's a way that someone is using his person um, to to get what he wants and to kind of have some agency or authority over the situation uh and it sounds like you know based on his story at least right um that they're they kind of ceased that and she didn't get caught um (laughs) but yeah that's like kind of an extreme example of someone using their body to kind of resist in ways that were beneficial to them and lastly there's a fifth facet of engagement how do you find an inmate's interaction with the prison community affects him for example the prisoner's jobs or interactions with with other prisoners Mm mm-hmm Um, So a lot of incarcerated folks worked, but a lot didn't. And part of that is because there weren't enough jobs to go around. Um, And uh, a lot of times people were in programming, but uh, again, a lot of them weren't because there aren't enough programs to go around, right? Like we've got such a high population of incarcerated people um, and don't necessarily always have the means to, to support rehabilitation inside the prison setting. So often you'll see people just kind of sitting and doing their time. And some of that's by choice. Some people would say, leave me alone. I just want to do my time. Um, But other people would be like, I wish I had something to do. I would like to work. I would like to busy myself. I want to go to school. Um, I want to take these classes. But they couldn't. um, They weren't able to get enrolled or to be able to do these kinds of things. Um, So as far as a job is concerned, they didn't have a lot of they didn't have a lot of agency there. They didn't have a lot of um, possibilities. And even when they did get a job, um, in one prison in particular, the warden kind of decided whether or not he would let them 
go and have this job that they wanted Mm -hmm. and he sometimes could just snap it back like that like if he's like oh never mind i don't want you to do that anymore he just kind of changes mind at the flip of a hat and the person would no longer be able to do that Um, in terms of other forms of engagement when i was when i was thinking about this in the paper and and um, how people interacted with one another lots of times there's this experience where people were sort of forced to engage or forced to act even when they really didn't necessarily want to um and so to kind of drill down a clearer example there um there were a lot of times when a group of people might approach uh, a new inmate and um they they might say to him like you have a few choices here um you can become someone's uh like person right mm-hmm. um that they are like kind of their your they are the authority over you, so you can kind of submit to this other man. Um, or you can fight, like you can fight for your honor and we'll leave you alone. Or you can pay us off. Like these are the these are the choices. Um, and I, I won't say the word here, but it was essentially F fight or bust a 50 was yeah. the phrase that was often uttered. And you can fill in the F and imagine what that might have been. Um, and so that's like extreme. But the thing that blew my mind is that I heard that story in that same phrase, the dollar amount changed. Um, but that phrase was uttered across all three of the Texas prisons that I went into. And I didn't I didn't explicitly ask it. It just came out of folks' mouths. Um, so, you know, just this this um, feeling that they had that it was like I you know I might not want to get in a fight I might not want to do that but what other choice do I have I mean my other choices are not ideal they're not ones that I want to make or can make maybe they don't have money Um, and so that would be kind of a situation where they didn't have a lot of choice Um, they refer to it sometimes as a heart check or they would say uh, I think corazón like the Spanish word for heart like heart check like where are you at like how good are you that kind Mm -hmm. of thing so that was something that they talked a lot about um, in terms of engagement was more so less so the engagement that they wanted to be doing and more so the engagement that they were forced into doing even though they didn't want to so the very extreme involuntary kinds Mm -hmm. What sights and sounds surprised you while you were walking through the prisons and researching? Yeah, um, I think there are a few different things, right? So you're saying sights and sounds. Um, I anticipated sort of the experience of um, having all eyes on me mm-hmm. when you're walking through a men's prison and you're a woman. Um, I, I, I knew that that would be the case. Um, even though I had a head knowledge that that would be the case, the physical experience of having everyone's eyes on you, and, and partially perhaps because I was a woman, partially perhaps because I was a visitor, I was somebody new to look at, I wasn't a correctional officer, um, and there's always you know a lot of mundane um, mundaneness to the everyday life of incarceration. And so there, I mean, there could be various different reasons, but for whatever reason, um, the eyes on you, like just feeling hundreds of eyes as you walk along, was pretty unsettling. Um, I think other things about the sights and sounds that surprised me, um, well, you didn't say smells, but honestly, the smell in one of the prisons I went into, the one I mentioned previous that was built in the 1800s in Texas, um, it it was, I couldn't breathe. It smelled real bad. And, um, and it was December when I collected this data. So it was the middle of winter in Texas, so it was not hot. Um, this place did not have air conditioning. I cannot even envision what it would have felt like to walk into that space in the summertime. Um, so just, you know, being aware, just the heightened sense of smell. Um, and then 
site-wise, one of the things that wasn't really necessarily that I noticed, but that another incarcer- that an incarcerated person told me about was he was being transferred for whatever reason and um, was in a transport car with a police officer. And um, he was just articulating, re- re- retelling this story to me about how in those moments in the dark while, while he was being transported, um, that he just said this was the first time in like a decade that he had ever been completely in the dark um, because it's never completely dark in prison. And so to just think about like our bodies and our circadian rhythm and um, the, you know, the light and the dark and how the dark helps us to sleep. And, um, you know, in, in Norway, for example, they've got these like room darkening shades because the sun doesn't go down in the summertime um, if you're north of the Arctic Circle. But here in prison, like this, these sensory things, you know, the sound never goes away. The light never goes down. Um, some of that I think was, was pretty extreme um another thing that i would say surprised me was the differences in the i'm going to use the word security i don't know if that's necessarily the right word but like the extent to which they left me alone um Mm -hmm. i was surprised by the differences there so i mentioned in norway that um, i sat with another co-researcher and we were um and it was actually in a library and there was a um like an emergency button nearby so if we had a problem they told us we could hit this button and people would come running in um but and they they left the correctional officers left um so there's three of us in the room at any time the other facilities i told you about the one with the glass between us um and then from there it got progressively more isolating for me like as far as being separated from watchful eyes um the next space i went into there was a table and um the uh, interviewee would sit across from me and we were in the room by ourselves and there was a big panel of glass that ran the length of the room and so people were walking by all the time mostly inmates sometimes correctional officers but we were alone in that room together but it was a pretty public area it was kind of this the heart of the prison people walked by a lot so I didn't feel um, incredibly like isolated or set aside the last place I visited and these are all similar level securities Um, in terms of the prisons themselves, so folks who had committed similar degrees of crimes. Um, They put me in a educational wing, and so there was extra security to get back into this room. There was like an additional locked door to go back in the wing, but then they put me in a classroom which had a camera, but the inmates told me that the camera didn't work. It was just a placebo camera. Like it was just there. Um, They said it didn't actually work. Who knows? Um, But there was like a closed door and it just had this tiny little sliver of a window in it. And so I'm in this room all by myself with this tiny little sliver of a window Mm -hmm. of a door at the end of a long hallway. Uh, And so it was just, you know, just the two of us sitting there. And so I think that um, just the the isolation um, and it was fine. Right. Like I wasn't afraid, but you asked me if I was surprised. I was surprised by that. Um, I was surprised that they let me do that. And that they left me alone in that setting. I was grateful, honestly, because I think I got much more honest answers from people because of the way that we were um, able to talk. Hmm. How has your mindset on prisons and the people in them changed since beginning your research for the study? Yeah, well, let me start. That's let me start by talking about my mindset on prisons, and and then I'll talk about my mindset on uh, incarcerated folks. <laughs> so my mindset on prisons, I think, has become over time. Um, more and more frustrated, more and more um, disenchanted by the way that we do prison in the United States. Um, the more I see of it, the the more frustrated I become. I think that there are there are some places that are doing really great things. I really do. I think that there's 
you know, pockets. There are pockets of prisons that are doing really good programming, that their focus and their goal is rehabilitation, that they're trying to prepare people to be successful as they transition out of prison. Um, I really do believe that. I believe there are good people working hard. Um, but I think, especially in the United States where we have privatized prisons where people can make a profit mm-hmm. um, over putting people in prison, uh, they're, they're incentivized to keep people there and to put people there to begin with. Um, I think that there's a lot of brokenness with the way that all of that works. And I think that we've got other models in the world where they're doing things better, where it's not just lip service that the focus is on both um, like punishment or you know retribution and rehabilitation. I think that the actual focus really like bends heavily, the scale tips heavily toward rehabilitation. And I think as a country that we need to do a better job of tipping our scale that way. Um, and there have been strides in that. Um, over the last decade or so, uh, it's actually starting to finally become a bipartisan issue, which is pretty exciting um, that there have been some changes and, and some reform. Um, but it's a long, long time coming. And so I, I think, sadly, I'm, I'm increasingly jaded and frustrated, but also motivated um, to try and be part of the solution of making a difference. Like, what is it that I can do to kind of help the brokenness that is that exists in this space and in, in this place and for these people. Um, and you know, how can I, how can I work alongside other people who have power and influence in these settings to, to make that better? Um, so that's what I would say about my mindset on prisons and, and where it's at right now. And as far as my mindset on the people in them, um, honestly, it hasn't shifted much. And that's mostly because it started from a place of, uh, my brother is an inmate in prison you know it started with me saying man he made a he made a bad choice and that bad choice landed him there and there are going to be um consequences for the extent of his life you know as as he walks on this earth um there'll be consequences for that and that's the same for pretty much everyone i encountered um i didn't meet anyone that i would say is a quote bad person i made i met they of course and they didn't put me in front of people who were Mm -hmm. um had committed extremely heinous crimes. Um, But I did talk to a few people who had taken lives of other people, um, which of course is an awful, awful crime. So, you know, hear me on this. I'm not saying that that's okay. Um, But um, I think that people are redeemable. I think that we have to find ways uh, wherever they are, whether they're behind bars or out, um, to kind of help, help right to walk alongside and and to make that better um but it hasn't changed my mind about people on the inside we all we all make errors we all make oversights we we all make really big mistakes and some of them are consequential and need consequences and and need there needs to be punishment for that right there has to be um but other times um one small choice that you make or you make or i make um it could have put me in the same position there was a guy that i talked to he had been a college student at Texas A&M, and he described how he had killed a few people in a drunk driving accident. And I just think on that, and I think about how many people I encounter as a professor every day that sit in front of me, my students, and I think back on my own college experience and all the people in my life, and I think about how many of the people in front of me in my classes and how many of my peers myself have gotten in a car and had too many things to drink, right? And how just a tip of fate or one small difference could have made that right could have put me behind bars or could have put my students behind bars or could put anybody right that makes that choice not a good choice 
really bad choice, um, but that we would land behind bars. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm I'm weaving one side of the story here. I'm weaving the side of the story of the person who has fallen, who has made that made that horrible mistake, and full well acknowledging that that's a partiality of a story, knowing that there are a lot of people out there hurting for crimes, awful crimes that have been committed against their family members or their loved ones. And so I think that we, uh, as people, just have to work to find that balance. Like, how do we how do we work for rehabilitation um, while at the same time, like, kind of honoring the really awful actions sometimes are the mistakes that people have made. And so so how do we do that? How do we do that better? And I think that's kind of why I keep doing this work um, is just looking for places to kind of enter that conversation and kind of help reweave that story. Well, uh, we'd like to thank you for coming in to talk with us today, uh, Dr. Peterson. Uh, is there anything you would like to say to the listeners? I'm just really grateful to have had the experience to talk about this. And I just encourage you to go out and find out more about what's going on in our prison systems. And if you're interested to get involved, because um, you all certainly have the capacity to make a difference as well. Today, we discuss the prison system in the U.S., the agency that the prisoners are able to exercise, and the things that Dr. Peterson has encountered while researching in prisons. Stay tuned for our next and final installment in this three-part series. We will interview a judge and discuss how their job has changed throughout the development of the opioid crisis and how they attack cases involving drug offenses. We'd like to thank Dr. Peterson for coming in to speak with us about this pressing issue. We'd also like to give a special thanks to our sound technician, Sarah Lewis. Thanks, Sarah. Our music is written and produced by none other than Quick Nibby. This has been the Matrix Podcast. Thank you.